We're going to look at Hebrews 5:11 through 6:12 or 13. This portion of the epistle, which has the very controversial section, <clears throat> verses 4 to 6 of chapter 6. This will be the last session on Hebrews this semester, and Lord willing, we will resume. Uh, next year uh, with the epistle and perhaps finish it uh, DV, uh, but uh, well, we're at the uh, mercy of God's providence in that regard. Nonetheless, uh, this is as far as we will get uh, for, with the epistle of the Hebrews this academic year. So let's bow in prayer as we begin this evening. Our Father, we thank you particularly at this Advent season of the year for the coming of the great High Priest, our Savior, the Lord Jesus, your dear and only begotten Son. Again, with the Christians throughout the world, we rejoice, as has happened for over 2,000 years, at his coming to be our Redeemer. And more than that, our risen and glorified Lord, the one who makes continual intercession for us. We thank you for his work. We thank you for his spirit who draws us near unto you through his work. We thank you for yourself, our Heavenly Father, because you are the Father of the Son, and together with the Son, are the two through whom the Spirit proceeds forever. And therefore, O Lord, as we rejoice with carols and with the Advent message and with the realization that our God has come to us in the likeness of flesh yet without sin, we will glorify you now and look forward to the time where we can sing together with the angels and the glorified hosts of heaven. And we adore you as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, both now and forevermore. Bless us this evening as we look at this challenging part of your word. We pray for your help as we work our way through it. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Now, as we did last week, I want to begin with the structure of this section because I believe that the structure of the text is important to the message that we find in this unit. So if you'll have your Bible open, uh, let's begin with the left-hand side of the outline uh, blanks, 5.11 and 6.12, the inclusio, which brackets this section. <clears throat> and as you scan those verses, uh, let me see if you can detect the uh, parallel uh, uh, forms. 5.11 and 6.12. Okay, 
slow to learn and lazy or dull of hearing is a better translation there in verse 11. What do you see in verse 12, Kay, that may, in fact, be parallel to that? Lazy or sluggish, all right? In verse 12, we have the word sluggish in verse 11 of chapter, verse 12 of chapter 6, verse 11 of chapter 5, we have dull of hearing. They are exactly the same forms in the Greek text. To become dull or become sluggish or to be dull or to be sluggish. Therefore, we have a kind of bracket around this section. There is a unit framed by this expression that our author uses to become dull or sluggish, either in hearing or in actually maturing. All right, so we set the outer limits of our uh, unit and note that it is perfectly framed in the Greek text. Now, for a moment, I'm going to bypass the hook words, but I want to uh, go down next to the pattern that repeats itself in verses 12 to 14 of chapter 5, 6 to 8 of chapter 6, and 9 through 13 of chapter 6. Now, this is a little more uh, challenging, uh, but let's begin at verses 12, 13, and 14, and uh, let's see if you can pick out the sequence. Uh, in fact, if you compare it with uh, verses 4, 7, and 8 of uh, chapter 6, you may be able to see uh, this jump out at you. It is fairly uh, initiatory uh, in each of those units. And it's not a very large word in each case. In fact, it stands so close to the beginning you might miss it altogether. What's the first word that you see in verse 12, Marge? Mm -hmm. Four, all right. Now, what word do you see at the beginning of verse 13, Marge? Four. Four again. And what's the first word at the beginning of verse 14, Marge? But. But. Four, four, and but. All right, now, Kay, as you look down at Chapter 6, what's the first word you see? Maybe your version doesn't have this, but what's the first word you see in verse 4 of your version? Verse 4, it says, it. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're looking at an NIV, right? Yes. Once again, that undependable NIV. What do you have, Marge? Four, four again. <clears throat> okay. Now, uh, I'll, I'll come back to you, Kay. Let's see what it says in verse 7 in your NIV. But not the first word. Okay, all right. Now, what's your first word in verse 7? Okay, once again, uh, Marge, what do you have? 
You have four again. All right. Back to you, Kay. What about the first word in verse eight? But. But. There you go. All right. Now, the reason I'm picking on the NIV is that the New American Standard is quite accurate here. Uh, In the Greek, each of these uh, prepositions for and the adversative, uh, that is the uh, adversative conjunction, but is in what's called the post-positive position. Now, post-positive means that in the verse, there are two Greek words to begin the verse, two of many. But this is the first word in the Greek text, and this is the second word in the Greek text. But the the words, preposition and the word but that we're looking for, the fours and the but, are in the second position, which which is called the post-positive position in the Greek grammar. Now, it's because it comes after the first word, okay? So it's post-positive. Well, what does this mean? In Greek, a post-positive is always translated first in English because that's the emphasis that the Greek places. It places it in the second position in the verse because it wants to emphasize it. So it begins the translation. In fact, a Greek person would read it first. That is, they would... They would, they would conceptualize it first, even though it's in the second position in the sentence. <clears throat> the NIV, in not following that, you see, as the NASB does, is making an interpretation. It's not translating the way the Greek grammar is to be understood, which is the reason it's easier for you to pick up my little outline in New American Standard, as uh, Marge is doing, than it is in the NIV. But <clears throat> nonetheless, notice <clears throat> we have the sequence in 5.12, 4, 5.13, 4, 5.14, but. Now, in chapter 6, verse 4, we have 4. Verse 7, we have 4. Verse 8, we have but. Okay, 4, 4, but, 4, 4, but in both of those sequences. Now, let's take a look at verse 9. Now, Cheryl, are you using a new American? Are you using one of the pew Bibles again? Okay. All right, uh, Art, do you have a New American Standard? Do you have an NIV? All right, we're going to come back to Marge again. Marge, you're our, uh, you're our barometer here. All right, as we look at verse 9, what do we see first in the verse? But, but is first. Is that true in your NIV versions? No. no, it's not. It's not in the, but again, you see in the Greek, it's in the post-positive, which means it should be first in the English translation, okay? All right, now, what do you find in verse 10, Marge? Four. Four. And finally, verse 13. Four. Four. All right. Now, so filling in your blanks in your outline, we have verse 9, but, verse 10, 4, verse 13, 4. All right. Now we've got our little paradigm, that is our little structural flow uh, identified uh, from uh, the translation of the Greek but the Greek is standard, okay? The Greek form of for, for, and but is always in the same post-positive position all the way through this inspired text. The author has specifically placed it there as a structural marker, as a structural clue. Right now, why he's done this, we're going to comment on in a minute. But right now, we've noticed what he's done, okay? All right, now, now we want to take a look at the hook words. Now, remember, a hook word 
is a word which appears at the end of one section or one unit of a argument or discussion or a narrative and also is found at the beginning of the next unit. It's kind of like a transitional device. Or if we say hook device, it's les mots crochet in uh, French, a crocheted word. And you know, any of you who've done crochet, you know what you're doing. You're hooking things together. You're tying them together so that they uh, they hold together uh, unified in a uniform way. All right, now, the easiest one to find is the hook word in verse 12 and 13. And this should come out even in your NIVs. Gerald, do you see the same word in verse 12 that you see in verse 13? And if so, what word is it? There you go. That's, that is correct. The word promise appears in verse 12, and it appears again in verse 13. So what he's done at the end of the unit that we're looking at tonight, he's hooking this unit at the bottom to the beginning of the next unit through the word promise. Okay? You get the idea. He's crocheted the sections together. Any question about that? You follow? What we're doing. In other words, it's another way to set off the unit. We've set it off with the inclusio of become dull or sluggish of hearing in 5.11 and 6.12. Now we see at the end of 6.12 and 13, the integration of promise ending one section of the unit and promise beginning the next unit of his argument. Now, we're going to go back up to the top on the outline to the hook word in 5.10 and 5.11. This one's a little more difficult to detect. And the reason for it is it's not exactly the same word. But let's begin by having Kay read the verse in her NIV. Verse 11, please. We have much to say about this, but it's hard to explain because you are slow to learn. Okay, now, her version said we have much to say about this. All right, Marge, I'm going to ask you to read your New American Standard in verse 11. Concerning him, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull. All right, so we have concerning him in the New American Standard. We have with respect to this in the New International Version. Frank, do you have anything different? What version are you using? NIV, okay, so there's no difference in the versions that are out there, which is fine. <clears throat> All right, now, who is the antecedent of this? What's the this that he's talking about in verse uh, tw- verse 11, K, in the NIV? Uh, I think he's talking about Jesus, no? Okay, she's guessing Jesus. Do you have anything else to suggest, Cheryl? Since you've got the NIV, Robert, do you have any other suggestion? Uh, I was talking about uh, Jesus being on the same order of Melchizedek. Okay, so you're suggesting that K is right, is referring back to Jesus. The this is referring to Jesus. All right, Marge, what, what do you think the him, the New American Standard translates it him, H-I-M. What, what do you think that's referring to? What's the antecedent of him? Do you agree that it's Jesus? Yeah, 
You're wrinkling your brow a little bit. I, I, I'm, I'm proud of you. Uh, go ahead. What do you think? You think it's going back to Jesus? All right. Okay. All right. This is an interesting exegetical question. Actually, what is translated in NIV this, and is in the margin of the New American Standard, and in the New American Standard is translated him, is neither in the Greek. Hmm. Because the Greek is the relative pronoun whom. Whom. All right, now, let's think of translating this verse literally on the basis of the Greek relative pronoun whom. Concerning whom, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain. Does that shed any light on whom is hard to explain? Is Jesus hard to explain? Certainly not in this epistle. We've had an awful lot about Jesus already, haven't we? Son of God, greater than Moses, etc. Our great high priest. So who is the antecedent of the relative pronoun? Look at the closest name before. It's Melchizedek. This solve. You see, if you translate the word properly, that is, translate the relative pronoun as it stands in the Greek, you will solve the mystery or the difficulty of trying to find out who he's talking about in verse 11. He is going to talk about Melchizedek. Okay, we have some, we have much to say. He's going to say much about Melchizedek in chapter 7. He's going to give us virtually a whole chapter on Melchizedek. So, he's not going to do it now, okay, because he's going to take the time to do it right now. But nonetheless, this is whom he is talking about. This is the him about whom he is discussing. This is the this. You see, you don't even have a personal individual in this demonstrative pronoun. See? So that takes the whole personal aspect out of the antecedent. All right, here's your hook word. Melchizedek in verse 10, and whom or him in verse 11. Talking about the same person. It's the personal proper name, Melchizedek in verse 10, and in verse 11. It is the relative pronoun or a personal pronoun about him in verse 11, which ties the two sections together. Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, and we're going to say something about him, about whom we are going to speak later. You see? So he's tying it together and projecting or anticipating what's going to come up eventually in chapter 7. All right, so your hook word there in 5.10 is Melchizedek, and in 5.11, either him or whom. I want to rule out this only because I want these two pronouns to have that personal aspect because we're talking about the person, the, the personal name of an individual, namely Melchizedek. All right, any questions about that? Here's our, here's our structural outline. We see a, a, a pattern which is here in the Greek text, 
and that pattern is framed by the inclusios, that is, become dull or sluggish, okay? That brackets or frames the unit, and then inside the unit we have this sequence of prepositions and uh, uh, conjunctions hooked together at the top and the bottom with the previous unit at the top and with the succeeding unit at the bottom. It's very neatly structured. Granted, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but it is still very neatly structured. All right, now, let's uh, let's summarize, in a way, uh, the broad uh, character of this structure that we have identified. After all, the structure is there, okay, then why is it there? What's its purpose? Okay, let's begin with... Verses 4 to 8 of chapter 6, which we have identified uh, on the right-hand side of our structural outline above. Okay, what is going on in verses 4 to 8 of chapter 6? What's he doing in that section? This is one of the most controversial sections in the whole New Testament. In fact, it's one of the most controversial portions of Scripture in the whole Bible. What's he doing in this section? Let me ask the question this way. In verses 4 through 8, is he giving a positive or negative assessment? What do you think, Kay? Positive or negative assessment? It is negative. Yes, he is giving a negative assessment. In fact, he even says that they're going to be cursed. So, this is a negative condemnation. All right, so the central unit here, okay, that is what is between verses 5, 11 to 6, 3, and 6, 9 to 12 and 13. What is between is a negative unit, of condemnation. All right, now let's go to 5.11 to 6.3. What's he doing there? Would you characterize that section or that unit as positive or negative? What do you think, Art? Positive or negative? Well, you know, I must say it seems negative to me. Is it negative like 648 where he's talking about apostasy by talking about them being cursed? No, he's talking about their immaturity. Very good. All right. So it, it is at least not as negative as that section between verses 48 of chapter 6. Okay. This is actually a positive exhortation. He is exhorting them. Okay. To leave aside the elementary elements and to grow up. It is a positive exhortation for them to continue in maturity, Christian growth. All right, now that leaves verses uh, 9 to 12 or 13 of chapter 6. As you look at that section, Robert, as you look at that bottom unit, would you assess that positively or negatively? Verses 9 through 13 of of chapter 6. Yes, we are convinced of better things concerning you, beloved. 
So that's definitely a positive commendation. All right, so here's the way it falls out. Verses 511 to 6.3 are a positive exhortation. Verses six, verses four to eight, six forty-eight are a negative condemnation, and six nine to thirteen is a positive commendation. Right now, notice what he's done. I told you that we identified the structure because the structure has meaning. Okay, we have an A, B, A prime pattern here. Okay, we have an A positive, an A prime positive, a B negative. Now remember last week when we looked at the structure of the previous unit, the unit that begins with the great high priest. Okay, we said that we had a threefold pattern there, which squeezed or sandwiched in the middle a comparison or an antithesis. You notice that he's done exactly the same thing here. He has drawn a comparison between the positive elements of his commendation and exhortation and commendation by this contrastive or comparative negation of apostasy and cursedness. He is sandwiching the accursed apostates between the positive uh, beloved believers, even though they are sluggish and dull of hearing and need to grow up a little bit. This is not a negative portrayal here, nor is this. And so once again, we have a framing device. He frames his positive commendation and exhortation around a sandwich negative antithesis. This group in verses 4 to 8 is the antithesis of this group. You see it. The structure tells you that this group is comparatively opposite the positive portrait of the two, the group that is on either side of them. It is the same group being considered from the standpoint of exhortation to further maturity and commendation for their beloved agape, their beloved loving, uh, lovingness. Now, With this large structural pattern, you have a clue to what the character of those in the middle section is. And the clue to the character of those in this middle section is that they are the antithesis of the character of those in the first section, 511 to 63, and the last section, 6, 9 to 13. They are the antithesis. They are the opposite. They are comparatively opposed to them. All right, so far, the structure. Now, let's look at another chiastic pattern. 
Now we want to go back to those particles, the preposition for and the conjunction but. And we want to look how that flows out in the uh, sequence beginning with 5.11.263. Beside your little A, B, C there, write what you wrote up above in 12, 13, and 14. Beside the A, 4. Beside the B, 4. Beside the C, but. Now, notice that the C prime, B prime, A prime is 6, 9, to 12, to 13. Now, what is the order of your particles now? What is your C prime going to be? But, very good, March. What's your B prime going to be? Four. What's your A prime going to be? Four. So notice, in the two positive sections, we have an A, B, C, C prime, B prime, A prime pattern, which is perfectly balanced, which is, of course, the point of a perfect chiasm. His particles flow in perfect chiastic reverse order in the A section and in the A prime section, or the A, B, C, C prime, B prime, A prime section. But in verses 4 to 8, what is the sequence that we have for the particles? What is the first one? What would be the A? Four. What would be the B? Four. What would be the C? But. And that looks like what? That looks like it's parallel to the sequence in uh, 5.11-6.3, doesn't it? In other words, the negative antithesis in terms of the sequence of particles looks as if it's exactly the same as the positive characterization of the sequence in verses 5.11-6.3. In other words, this group in verses 4 to 8 look as if they are the exact parallel of the group in verses 5.11-6.3. They appear to be a duplicate. Are they? They are not. And so you will notice what he's done. He has used the repetition of the ABC pattern as if to indicate that it is outside of the perfect chiasm because although they appear to be the same as this positive group who are growing up to maturity, they are in fact outside of the chiasm. They appear to be duplicates, but appearances are deceiving. They are not. They appear to be the same as the positive, beloved part of the community, but they are not. All of which means that they are in the community, appearing to be like 
the genuine, positive members of the community. But in fact, they are not. All right, now, the structure outlines the uh, significance of this apparent similarity between the negative and the positive group, which in fact is not a genuine or authentic similarity. They are in the community, but they are not part of the authentic community. Well, why does he use the language that he does in verses 4 to 6 in particular to describe this antithetical character or this negative or reverse character of this group? Let's begin on page 2 of your handout with the narrative paradigm. Now, we're going back. We're going back in our discussion of the epistle. What is the broad narrative paradigm that we have said is behind the epistle to the Hebrews? What is the story that is kind of in the background of the epistle to the Hebrews? Okay, and where does that begin in the Old Testament? Mm, You're not wrong. Okay, where has he been featuring? Where's where's he been focusing in the past several chapters? Where has he been focusing? Abraham. Abraham, true. Where else? In the Exodus. All right. So, so the Exodus paradigm. That's your first blank there. The Exodus paradigm is the broad paradigm for his imagery, okay? Now, what does he see coming after the Exodus, Terry? No, where do they go after the Exodus? Wilderness, okay? So from the Exodus to the wilderness is the broad narrative pattern, paradigm. Remember, he had talked about them coming out of Egypt and their bodies dropping in the wilderness because they would not enter into God's Sabbath rest because the Psalm 95, which is recapitulating that whole pattern of what happened to the Exodus generation in the wilderness. So, all right, so our, our background for his, his imagery, background for his thinking is Exodus wilderness story. All right, you got that in your mind? You're thinking about that? All right. Now, when we talked about that, we talked about that narrative story, that paradigm, particularly when we focused upon the fact that those that came out of Egypt, some of them dropped in the wilderness. Their carcasses dropped in the wilderness. They did not enter into God's rest. We noticed the distinction between the mm versus the um. Ring any bells? How could you come out of Egypt and still not go into God's everlasting rest? Because there's a distinction between the external and the internal. 
There's a distinction between the external Israel and the internal Israel. There's a distinction between the visible Israel and the invisible Israel. All right. Keeping that fat framework in mind. All right. Now let's take a look at the language of verses four, five and six of chapter six. All right. Here's your story. You're, keep in mind your story. Exodus to wilderness sojourn. All right. Now, as you're thinking about that story, you read the word enlightened. And what comes to mind? Think of the wilderness story and think of the word enlightened and what comes to mind. No, no. Think of the word lightened. The pillar of fire. Exactly. All right. So let's keep our finger in Hebrews chapter six and let's go back. We need to read some texts. Let's go back to Exodus chapter 13. And let's begin with that verse, verse 21 of Exodus 13. Notice we're thinking about. Hebrews 6.4, and the word enlightened. They were enlightened. All right. Art, do you have Exodus 13.21? Yes. By day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. Notice the phrase, to give them light. All right, now, that is also repeated in verse 22. So, in Exodus 13, 21 and 22, he talks about the pillar of fire to give them light. Now, let's go over to one of the Exodus Psalms. There are a number of Exodus Psalms, but we're going to look at Psalm 105. Psalm 105, verse 39. Frank, do you have Psalm 105, verse 39? Would you read for us? He spread out the cloud as a covering and a fire to give light at night. To give light at night. Okay, so the Exodus Psalm refers back to the light that was shed abroad upon the visible Israel as they sojourned in the wilderness. And finally, we're going to look at one of the most famous passages of recapitulation of the wilderness in Exodus, Nehemiah's great prayer in chapter 9. So let's take a look at Nehemiah 9, verses 12 and 19. Nehemiah 9, verses 12 and 19. Terry, are you there yet? Okay. Okay. Nehemiah 9, verse 12. Do you have it? Uh huh. Okay. Verse 12, please. And verse 19. Because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the desert. In the wilderness. Notice, okay. Fire by night 
or to light the way that they were to take. All right, now, you see the motif that is here. It is the motif of enlightening their way, or shedding light upon their way, of illumining their way. The pillar of fire is an image of uh, uh, the uh, shedding of light or the broadcasting of light upon the way of the children of Israel in that wilderness sojourn. I'll give you another uh, list of verses that you can note. We're not going to look them up. Uh, We don't have time to do them all. Psalm 78, verse 14. Numbers 14, verse 14. And Deuteronomy 1, verse 33. All of them refer to the light which God shed upon the way of the pilgrims of that wilderness journey. All right, so the word enlightened in Hebrews 6.4 may be, in fact, related to the sojourn motif. Namely, they had the light of God's radiance upon them as they made their way. But what happened to many of those who had that light upon them on their way? Their carcasses dropped in the wilderness. They had an evil heart of unbelief. They did not enter into his rest. So in other words, they could be enlightened. That is, they could participate in the light of his illuminant radiance and yet refuse to believe in God. Ah. Ah. So he's not talking about spiritual enlightenment at all. It's talking about the physical illumination of the radiance of the glory of God shining upon them through the pillar of fire. That's the background for his image here. Well, he's not done. We go on in verse 4. Tasted the heavenly gift. Okay, you're smiling. What are you anticipating? Yes, exactly. Very good. Let's go to Exodus 16, verse 4. We'll begin with Exodus 16, verse 4. Terry, do you have it yet? Yes. Thank you. Uh, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether uh, or not they will walk in my instruction. Thank you. All right, so he's sending them bread out of heaven. Now, once again, to that Exodus psalm, Psalm 105, verse 40, the very next verse after the one we looked at uh, just a few minutes ago, Psalm 105, Verse 40. David, do you have it? Psalm 
That ninth chapter of Nehemiah is so very important in the history of redemption. Verse 15 of Nehemiah 9. Art, are you there? Yes. Verse 15 of Nehemiah 9. In their hunger, you gave them bread from heaven, and in their thirst, you brought them water from the rock. You told them to go in and take possession of the land you had sworn with uplifted hand to give them. All right, so the heavenly gift here is the bread out of heaven that they ate. They participated or tasted the heavenly gift. They tasted the manna in the wilderness. Psalm 78, another Exodus Psalm, verse 24, repeats the same pattern, and Jesus mentions this in John chapter 6, verse 31. So, the tasting of the heavenly gift is a reference to the heavenly bread that came down and fed them in the wilderness. They tasted that heavenly gift, and yet... Their carcasses dropped in the wilderness. All right, now to verse, I'm I'm sorry, now to the last phrase in verse 4, partakers of the Holy Spirit. This is the most challenging phrase in this unit. But as we have noted, writer is using the background of his narrative paradigm, that is the wilderness sojourn. So let's look for reflections upon the Holy Spirit in this period of the wilderness sojourn. We're going to return to Nehemiah 9. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 20 now. Nehemiah 9, verse 20. Who has it? Go ahead, Marge. And thou didst give thy good spirit to instruct them. Thy manna thou didst not withhold from their mouth, and thou didst give them water for their thirst. Thou didst give them thy good spirit. All right, the spirit was given to the wilderness generation. Okay, let's turn over to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 63, verse 11. Isaiah 63, verse 11. Art? Then his people recalled the days of old, the days of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them through the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he who set his Holy Spirit among them? He set his Holy Spirit in the midst of them, or amongst them, according to Isaiah. Once again, this is the wilderness paradigm. This is in the wilderness. And finally, the prophet Haggai, Haggai chapter 2, verse 5. Haggai chapter 2, verse 5.
Yeah, it takes you a little while to find that one because you don't turn to it very often. <laughs> Although all of you who heard Benji's series on it should be able to find it pretty quickly. Okay, do you have it? Hey, guy, two five. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. Notice the connection with the spirit in the midst of his people with the exodus from Egypt. These are three very strong passages which illuminate what the writer is referring to in Hebrews 6.4. Partakers of the Holy Spirit in the sense that they shared this outward manifestation of the presence of the Spirit in their midst. All right, now you might ask what that present manifestation was. He's going to define that in verse 5. But the Holy Spirit here is in terms of this external manifestation of his presence. It is not an internal transformation of the person. Partaking of the Holy Spirit here is partaking in the aura of his manifestation, not of his internal transformation. All right, now, verse 5. Tasted the good word of God. That one's fairly easy. In the wilderness sojourn, they tasted the word of God. For instance, going back to something Kay mentioned earlier, the Ten Commandments. And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And on we go. The Lord spake all these words. They heard the voice of the Lord speaking the commandments. And all through the wilderness, you see, they heard the word of the Lord, either directly or they heard it from Moses, his servant. So in the wilderness generation, the tasting of the word of God in the sense that they tasted it by the hearing of their ears was part of their external experience. And the powers of the age to come. The last phrase there in verse 5. What is he talking about when he says these powers of the age to come? What powers are these? What do you think, Terry? No, no powers are these. What do you think, Frank? I was going to say the same thing. Okay, Art. Likewise, Marge. David. Uh, I would think it would be of uh, eschatology. Would be of the uh, worship that would be accruing to uh, after the first advent. There is an eschatological element in these powers. I don't want to deny that. That's good. But you haven't got your finger on what the powers are, okay? 
Here's this wilderness generation. They're tasting the powers of the age to come. Now, what are they experiencing? Terry? The heaven, the, the promised land. No. Well, they have miracles. That's it. These are the miracles. You see, the age to come is a supernatural age. It's an eschatological age. But those miracles are present in the wilderness experience because God sends them the, the miracle of the manna. He sends them water out of the rock. He miraculously parts the sea to begin the journey. They have already seen the powers of the age to come in the plagues against Egypt. Those are eschatological judgments against the gods of the Nile. Okay, So, in other words, tasting the powers of the age to come is they have the experience of miraculous powers. Terry? Well, that is, I don't get the age to come. They're in that age. They are in their temporal age receiving a manifestation of the age to come, a miraculous manifestation of the age to come. Okay, he miraculously demonstrates that in the age to come there are no uh, uh, idols of Egypt. There is no hunger. There is no thirst. But you see, even in the wilderness, they get a taste of that. They get a taste of it because they're fed. They're given drink. Okay, they're set free from their bondage to those principalities and powers and the rulers of the darkness of Egypt. It is not a consummate eschatological, but this is a external. This is a, a visible manifestation of the powers of the age to come penetrating into their experience in history. All right, now, verse 6 uh, uh, oh, incidentally, we should go back and take a look at the text. Uh, uh, I'll mention Numbers 14, verses 11 and 22. Just make a note of that. But I want to turn once again to Nehemiah 9. Numbers 14, 11 and 22. But let's look, let's look again at Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah 9, verse 10. I can't commend this prayer in Nehemiah highly enough. It is a wonderful prayer of the history of redemption, particularly focusing on the exodus and wilderness motif. What does he say in verse 10 here of his prayer? Mars, do you have it? Then thou didst perform signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his servants and all the people of his land. For thou dost know that they acted carefully toward them, Signs and wonders. Those are the powers of the age to come. And finally, Psalm, or not finally, but Psalm 105 again, the Exodus Psalm, Psalm 105, verse 27. Psalm 105, verse 27. You have it, Robert? No. I do. Cheryl, 105.27. He performed his miraculous signs among them, 
His wonders in the land of Ham. Very good. His miraculous signs. I like that. I even like the NIV translation there. Okay. Okay. These are <laughs> these are miraculous signs and wonders, or the miraculous powers of the age to come, being revealed in the sojourn of the people of God. Make a note about Psalm 78, another Exodus Psalm, verse 43. And finally, Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 21. In all of those texts, the, the miraculous power of God, as it was manifest, as it was demonstrated in the wilderness, is underscored. All right, now, in verse 6, our writer of Hebrews says, They fell away. Or these persons have fallen away. What's behind that expression? Think about your story again. Think about your wilderness sojourn. And the phrase, fallen away. Marge? Their bodies dropped in the wilderness. They fell away because of an evil heart of unbelief. Psalm 95. All right, so he's going back to Psalm 95 with this motif. Only he uses a different expression here. Once again... All of the imagery from 4, 5, and now 6 is coming out of the Exodus wilderness narrative paradigm, which leaves us with verses 7 to 8 and the form or the phrase blessing and cursed. Where does this come from? Turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 26. Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 26. You have it, Robert? Uh, okay. Deuteronomy eleven twenty-six. 26. Yeah. See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. Blessing and cursing. Set before the wilderness generation by Moses in the context of the Exodus and wilderness sojourn. Okay, all right. Now, as we look at how he unfolds this negative or antithetical assessment of these persons uh, who have fallen away, he is using the language of his basic paradigm. Namely, the story of the Exodus wilderness generation. They were enlightened, and yet they fell away. They tasted the heavenly gift. They ate the manna, and yet they fell away. They were partakers of the Holy Spirit in the sense that the Holy Spirit was manifest in their midst, and yet they fell away. They tasted the word of God, and yet they fell away. They had a taste of the powers of the age to come in the demonstration of the miraculous signs and wonders of the eschatological age of heaven. And yet they fell away. They fell away because they had an evil heart of unbelief. Psalm 95. And out of that, they received the declaration of blessing and curse, which was the very sentence issued against that wilderness generation. Now, as we put all of this together, 
from this very precise structure and the sandwiching of the antithesis and the fact that this group appears to be like the positive first group in verses 5.11 to 6.3, we now know that they are not. And they are not any more than that generation which perished in the wilderness was like the generation that went into the land or particularly like Joshua and Caleb. They were not. What is our author doing? He is drawing a contrast or a comparative antithesis between the apparent and the authentic. He is drawing a contrast between those who appear to be genuine and those who are actually genuine. In verses 4 to 8, those who are apparently enlightened, apparently tasting the, uh, uh, partaking of the Holy Spirit, apparently tasting the word of God, the powers of the age to come, are not authentic. The antithesis sandwiches them. Any more than those in the wilderness who were enlightened by the pillar of fire, who tasted the uh, heavenly gift, etc., anywhere than they were authentic. They were only apparent sojourners. You get the pattern here. All right. Another way of expressing this. The phenomenal are not the actual. Now, here I'm using phenomenal in the sense of they appear to be. They are phenomena, visible, okay? The phenomenal Israel, that is the Israel that you can see, is not the actual Israel. It is not the Israel invisible, but visible to God. So there's a distinction between the phenomenal uh, people of God and the actual people of God. That is true in the wilderness generation. Many of the phenomenal, their carcasses dropped in the wilderness. The actual, Joshua and Caleb, as a case in point, did not. All right. The generate are not the regenerate. All the Israel generated is not the Israel regenerated. All the Israel that is visible is not the Israel which is invisible. And how do we see this? We turn to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, verses 6 to 8. Where Paul lays down this paradigm, which is consistent with what we're outlining from Israel is not all Israel. Notice how he does it. 
Romans 9, 6, 7, and 8. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Neither are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. Notice that Paul is consistently doing the same thing in Romans 9, 6 to 8 that we have been indicating is true of that wilderness generation. All Israel, which is the invisible Israel of the promise, is not from Israel, which is the Israel of the flesh. Or the outward generated Israel according to the flesh is not the necessarily the regenerated all Israel according to the promise. This, shall we say, restrictive or more particular elective principle, which is at issue here, as we notice these contrasts or antithesis between these paradigms. Thinking back again to the wilderness generation as the foundation of our paradigm. All right, one more. One more. Romans chapter 2. Turn back to chapter 2 of Romans, verses 28 and 29. For the last principle the outward Israel is not the inward Israel. Notice what the apostle says here. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly. Neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not of the letter. Paul uses precisely the same language that we're using here in order to provide this paradigm, this narrative paradigm. The outward Israel in the wilderness generation was not necessarily the inward Israel. The Israel which was circumcised in the flesh outwardly in that wilderness sojourn was not necessarily the inward Israel circumcised in the spirit. The language of Hebrews 6, 4 to 6, is the language of the narrative paradigm of the wilderness sojourn of the children of Israel in the era, in the old old era, in the former era, and becomes his storyboard to warn his audience or to inform his audience that those who are part of the visible outward community are not necessarily members of the inward, invisible, and regenerate community. And he is taking a principle here in his own narrative style, which is no different than the principle the Apostle Paul uses in Romans 9 and in Romans 2. It is the same paradigm, only it is applied here uh, specifically to a storyline. Therefore, there is no suggestion 
in these four verses, Hebrews 6, uh, 4, 5, and 6, there is no suggestion that these people were believers, regenerate, transformed, part of the invisible Israel, born again, people of God. No suggestion whatsoever. They are external participants in the outward movement of the community. But because they are outward participants, they are not guaranteed any entrance into the land, nor are they guaranteed any faith or gift thereof. For in fact, they have an evil heart of unbelief. They do not have faith and they drop in the desert because of their unbelief. They are not the Israel according to the spirit. They are the Israel according to the flesh. They are Hebrews outwardly. They are not Hebrews inwardly. They are pilgrims outwardly. They are not pilgrims Inwardly, they are not truly bound to the pilgrim pioneer and perfecter who is Christ. They are pretenders. And they have fallen away in this community. And he resolves the dilemma of how could they have been so Involved in our community? How could they have been so enthusiastically involved in our relationship, in our fellowship, and then have fallen away? How could that be? And he says, well, I want you to remember what happened to the wilderness generation in the days of Moses. I want you to think of that story as the model upon which you will understand how it could be that they fell away. You're going to ask the same question. How could they have come out of Egypt? How could they have gone through the Passover? How could they have gone to the Red Sea? How could they have heard God's voice on Mount Sinai? and dropped in the wilderness with an evil heart of unbelief. Notice, it's a one-for-one one correspondence that he uses in order to solve this question of whether or not they were ever truly born again or not. And the answer is they fell away because they never were, even as the generation perished in the wilderness because they never were. It's easy. It's simple. It is not a complex Arminian, Wesleyan notion of, yes, you can be saved today and damned tomorrow. No, that is not what's going on here. They were never saved. But no Arminian exegete can get it. Because he reads the language as if the language is effectual. Is if it's efficacious language. He's not meaning that this language is efficacious. He couldn't mean it. They fell away. How could it be efficacious if they fell away? And notice that he places the antithesis between them and in verse 9, Beloved, we are persuaded of better things of you. This group, which has its problems with immaturity, is set antithetically. It's even sandwiched antithetically in the structure between the group which is born again, though it's struggling with its immaturity. All right, there, yeah, Cheryl. One question. Why did they 
because they didn't want to stay in slavery. For instance, given your choice, dying in the slave pits of Egypt or you get to go out with Moses, what choice are you going to make? You wouldn't, you wouldn't follow him just to get out, just to get out of misery? Because, I, because it sounds to me like if I'm not a believer, am I going to figure that it's going to be better on the other side? Or you pretend to be a believer, or you persuaded yourself that you're a believer, and you say, oh yeah, I believe in getting out of here. And it'd be better for me to get out of here than for me to die here in the slave pits. Watch the Mill's Ten Commandments. Look at what happens to him in the slave pits. Very graphic. He does it very well. You don't want to die in those pits. So you've got an escape. You got an escape route. We gotta get out of here. I don't care what's out there. What's back here I don't want. At least until I get out there, and then when I get out there, I wish I were back there. But the point is, why did they follow him? They followed him because he offered them freedom. You know, why did they follow Lenin? He offered them freedom. Why did they follow Hitler? He offered them freedom. Why do they offer why do they follow any demagogue? He pretends to be a messiah, he's gonna give them freedom, liberty, hope and change. David. Well, I think we all labor uh, with the uh, mischaracterization in the film The Ten Commandments that uh, there's a scene in there where some idols are discovered and, and there's admonishment not to have the idols. But Ezekiel 20 tells us that that generation were idol worshippers in Egypt. They worshipped uh, the Egyptian idols and gods, and they took it with them out of Egypt. Yes, that's true. I'm not defending everything in the DeMille uh, depiction of the Ten Commandments. I'm not defending, for instance, his late day to the Exodus, etc. I don't agree with that. But the point is that the visualization that he gives you is a visualization that allows you to come to grips with the real experience of bondage and slavery in Egypt and the horror of it in measure. Okay, well, uh, we're beyond the break time, but I need to let you get a little bit of, uh, of a stretch. I have a few more things we want to observe here. <clears throat> but uh, my, my key then to the solution of this Cook's interpretum, that is this hard point of interpretation in Hebrews 6, 4 to 6, my key is the theme of Hebrew sojourners, Hebrew pilgrims. It's the theme of the context that he has created ever since chapter 3 of the paradigm of the story of the wilderness journey, the wilderness uh, sojourn. That's my key. I think that solves the problem of the tension in the text. Because once you look at that wilderness generation in the terms of this phenomenal appearance or outside or external appearance, and you think of Psalm 95, you realize the solution is they were never regenerate. Never. Okay, well, stretch your legs for a few minutes, and we'll take the uh, last few things on your outline uh, with respect to chapter 6 particularly. I won't keep you for the full uh, 45 minutes, but uh, I do want to round off and uh, make some comments about elements in chapter 6. 
beginning with the issue of the elementary teachings in verse 1. Back on, Scott? Okay, thank you. Notice, if you will, the contrast that this sets up between the ending of chapter 5 and the opening here of chapter 6. These elementary or beginning teachings are contrasted with the solid food of the mature believer in the previous verses. Contrast between milk and solid food there is a contrast of uh, less maturity and greater maturity. Consequently here, he's urging them to leave the things that they've already got down, that is the uh, principles of their immature babe-like foundation, and move on to uh, greater uh, growth, greater depth of understanding, etc. The kind of thing that all of you are doing here this evening. You're trying to move on to greater depth of understanding. You're trying to move beyond the elementary teachings uh, that you've had. You don't want to be babes. You want to take on the solid food. Uh, So I commend you for uh, being in the mirror or the reflection of the kind of uh, community that the uh, apostle or the writer rather here is appealing to. All right. So uh, that's the fundamental issue here. Got a group of people that have grown sluggish and a little bit dull because they've been content with the basics, the elementary ABCs. And he's saying, now look, you've been on basics, you've been on milk long enough. It's time for you to move on to solid food just like any child moves on to solid food, like any grown-up moves on. You grow up to go beyond those childish things. You put them away and you go on to the depths of the riches of the grace of God in Christ Jesus. Or at least you should be. This is the invitation of the word of God, not for you to remain at the superficial level of the basic gospel, but for you to be drawn down into the depths of what the word of God is teaching you. That's the opportunity that is laid before you with the scriptures and with the teaching of the historic Orthodox and Calvinistic churches for you to go deeper. And that means deeper than even the 16th and 17th century. There is more depth than Calvin or uh, the Westminster Divines ever imagined. That doesn't make them wrong in what they did teach, but there is more out there. Or Jesus would have come back in 1699 and we wouldn't be in 2010 approaching 2011. There's more light to break forth out. There's more for you to learn. Are you eager to eat the solid food or are you content to be a milk-fed babe and to stay a baby Christian? Is that where you are? Well, that's where this community was. And so he's exhorting them to, you know, get off the dime and remember that these basics are behind you. It's time for you to grow up. It's time for you to start chewing on some solid doctrine, for you to grow up and understand the depths of the scriptures, for you to get on with what the Bible is revealing about God, Christ, and the history of salvation. In other words, it's it's time for you to get on to eschatology, semi-eschatology, protology, etc. That's meat. Solid food. Beyond the basics, but it is an indication of your growth.
because you're beginning to handle the deep things of the Word of God. Okay, so that's what's behind this exhortation here. Well, what are these elementary teachings? Well, he lists them. And I want you to notice how he lists them. He lists them in pairs. In verse 1, it's repentance from dead works and faith towards God. Notice that he uses the preposition faith toward God as he uses the preposition from dead works. Well, what is repentance? Repentance is turning from one direction to another direction. He uses the prepositions intentionally here to emphasize that reverse, that about face that is part of the relationship of repentance and faith. In in repentance, you are hell-bent for destruction. You are headed this way on the path of your sojourn and your life. And you turn from that by repentance and you turn to something else. You turn to faith in God, faith in Christ. Repentance without turning to Christ is not repentance at all. It's a New Year's resolution. It's a, well, I'll make myself a better person next year or next week or whatever. That's not repentance. You don't, you haven't given it up. You haven't turned from it. You're like a dog going back to your vomit. You turn from it to faith. Faith means you are now laying hold of an entirely new object. This is the focus, not that. Not that hell-bent, destructive path, but this, this pathway that leads to the celestial city, to the kingdom of God. Christ is now the focus. That's what repentance is. You give that up. You've been in bondage to pornography, you give that up because your faith is focused upon Jesus Christ. That's gone. It's dead to you. You don't give it up. You're not looking to Christ. You're not looking to Christ. You're just pretending. You're playing the game. All right, so this is the the whole transformative, or shall we say, about face that is included in conversion, genuine conversion, repentance and faith. You can't have one without the other. Any more than you can have a horse and a carriage or love and marriage. You can't have one without the other. Okay. Now, the second tandem is instructions about washings and laying on of hands. There's your second uh, duality, second pair. And the third is resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Now, question comes in verse 2. What are these washings? And laying on of hands. All right, for washings, we want to turn ahead in this epistle to chapter 9, verse 10. In chapter 9, verse 10, we find the very same word. What is the context? of that word in chapter 9, verse 10.
What's he talking about? What kind of washings is he talking about there in that in that verse, in that section? Frank, what's he talking about? Kind of external. Can you give me any specifics? Very good. That's the word we wanted. <clears throat> All right. Let's keep our finger in Hebrews 6 and turn back to Mark chapter 7. Gospel Mark chapter 7. And when somebody finds it, will they read it, please? Mark 7, 4. First person to find it, just start to read. And who's speaking here? Whose words are these? Anybody? No, these are the words of Jesus. Okay, Jesus is talking about the Pharisaical ceremony. Oh, I'm sorry, it is a parenthetical statement, okay? He's explaining what the Jews or the Pharisees do. All right. Notice the washing, the cleansing ritual. The ceremonial washings, this is all part of the ceremonial law, which is laid out in detail, excuse me, in the 19th chapter of the book of Numbers. All right, make a note that your Old Testament uh, reference is Numbers 19. These washings then, in Hebrews 6, verse 2, are ceremonial purifications. They are ritual cleansings. They have to do with the Jewish customs of the ceremonial laws. Now, they knew about the elementary teaching, the elementary instruction about those things. Namely, that they were to be left behind, which is what he's going to go on to describe in detail in chapter 9. He specifically highlights it in the 10th verse of the 9th chapter. But these elementary elements... You need to grow up. We're not going to go through ritual ceremonial purifications anymore. That's gone. Passed away. All right, what about the laying on of hands? The next phrase in that verse, the next part of the uh, dualism there. What's he referring to when he mentions the laying on of hands? All right, now remember the context for the uh, washings. Does that help you with the laying on of hands. Okay, let's go back to Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 3, verse 2. And once again, the first person that gets it, would you read it? Leviticus 3, 2. He is to lay his hand on the head of his offering and slaughter it, at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Then Aaron's sons, the priest, shall sprinkle the blood against the altar on all sides. Notice in verse 1 that this is a peace offering. In a peace offering, the offerer brings his victim and he lays his hands upon its head, the laying on of hands. Because in laying his hands upon the victim's head, he is transferring his iniquity to the beast, and the beast will be a vicarious substitute. It will take 
the penalty of his sin in his place. He will kill it because he's saying, I deserve to die. He will execute it because he's saying, I deserve to be executed, but the beast will take it in my place. Now, this ordinance of laying on of hands, okay, this elementary principle of the laying on of hands is another ceremonial order. So, moving beyond that, they have come to an end because of the eschatological vicarious victim, the eschatological vicarious sacrifice, because of Christ himself who puts an end to the laying hands on the sacrifice of bull and goats. So you lay the hands of faith upon this vicarious victim, and once and for all, he delivers you from the elementary elements or the beggarly elements of that ceremonial order. You're free from that. He has set you at liberty. No more laying on of hands of bulls and goats and animal victims. Now, the last uh, uh, tandem is the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. An elementary teaching because any Jew trained up in the knowledge of the Old Testament understood the teaching on the resurrection of the dead. From Daniel chapter 12, from Isaiah chapter 26, they understood the promise of the resurrection of the dead at the end of the age. Eternal judgment, of course, that's given with the fact that the dead are raised. There is a judgment even at death. There is a judgment at the final end of the world. All Jewish eschatology in the Old Testament was grounded upon the fact that you were going to have to answer for your works done in the flesh at the final judgment. So they already are well grounded in these things. He doesn't need to go over the basics. All right, now, he says in verse 3, that he would talk more about them if he had time. Now, he's going to talk about the ceremonial aspects, particularly of verse 2, in chapter 9. He's not going to expand particularly on resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment or dead works, of repentance from dead works and faith. He's, he's, he's going to uh, talk about faith in chapter 11 in an elaborate way. Okay, so he's going to get to that one. <clears throat> but resurrection and final judgment, he's leaving as a basic assumption. I don't really need to tell you much more about that. You've been well schooled in it. Now, in verse 6, <clears throat> we have a translation issue. In your New American Version, your New International Version, I should say, in verse 6, you see the word if. If it is not in the Greek text, the New International is reading a conditional clause into this verse. If they fall away, as if it is possible for them to somehow be saved and then as a consequence of a condition fall away. That is not in the text. The text simply says, and have fallen away. Therefore, there is no conditional issue here. This is the declarative matter. And the declarative matter reinforces my own interpretation of the passage that they never had salvation in the first place. This is not an if-then consequence. This is a, they are there. It's a declaration of their state. 
But he goes on in that verse to indicate that since they have fallen away, they have crucified the Son of God to themselves and put him to open shame. What have these apostates done? What did the apostates in the wilderness generation do? They put God himself to open shame of having brought them out and then refused to trust his promises to bring them in to the land of milk and honey. It was as if they contemptuously shook their fist in the face of God once he had redeemed them from the physical or the outward condition of bondage and slavery and then contemptuously rebelled against him and called him no God at all in the wilderness by bowing down before a golden calf, by rebelling against Moses with uh, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, by practicing fornication at Baal Peor. The rebellion of that generation in the wilderness was a rebellion against God. It was contempt of God, their deliverer, their physical deliverer, and a refusal for them to embrace him as their eternal and spiritual deliverer. So once again, in this community, these apostates are putting God to shame. Only this time it is the Son of God. They put themselves in the place of those who first crucified Jesus and humiliated him. They are just like those who stood at the foot of the cross, mocked and cursed him. Isn't that the fruit of apostasy? It is the fruit of apostasy that we see in our culture. The cursing Christ, the public cursing of Christ, the artistic cursing of Christ, the profanation and blaspheming of Christ in our public arenas. They put themselves in the same company of those who humiliated him and executed him. They have no heart of faith or belief. They never did. How could they reach such a level of contempt if they had any or ever had any genuine regard for the Christ of God? To treat him so publicly, visibly, is to demonstrate their character. They have an evil heart of unbelief. Now, God's arm is not short that he cannot convert them and turn them from their evil ways. But if they have entered into the community and they have pretended to be on the journey and they have firmly apostatized from that journey, then it is impossible for them to be renewed. They are lost. Irremediably and irretrievably. That is a hard, hard saying to realize, but the peril of apostasy is the peril of fixing yourself in the state of an evil heart of unbelief. And just like that wilderness generation, your carcass will drop outside God's everlasting rest. Impossible for you to be renewed. Impossible. You step into this Christian life with great peril if you are not the real thing. 
if your heart is not the heart of a Joshua and Caleb. You step in to this life and pilgrimage in peril. Now, in verse 12, he urges them to be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises, and then he hooks that promise up to the promise to Abraham. So these promises that he has in mind are, first of all, the promises to the patriarch. They are patriarchal promises, covenantal promises to the patriarchs. But that word imitators, as soon as it's mentioned to a 21st century audience, immediately is translated into model. I must imitate because they are my models. No. How do you then explain faith and patience to inherit the promise? That is, how do you explain being a joint heir of Christ by faith? That's not a model that you can imitate. So what's the point of this word imitator? It's not modeling yourself or using an example. Jesus as my great example. Abraham is my great example. No. It's not superficial. It's not cheap. It's more powerful. This word imitator is to be translated participator. This is an invitation for you to participate in the very same faith that Abraham participated in. This is an invitation for you to identify with the very same patience and faith that Abraham himself demonstrated in believing upon God when he was past the age of producing a child. You are called to share that faith, not to imitate it as if it's a model or an example, but for you to participate in the very same drama of that faith and belief and confidence and trust that Abraham participated in. Imitator here in the New Testament, even as it is in the Apostle Paul, be imitators of me as I am of Christ Jesus. Be a participant with me as I am in Christ Jesus. Don't dumb down the word imitation to make it exemplary. Or yourself a copycat of a model. Plumb the depths of what this word is driving you to. For you to be united to the faith, to the patience, to the Christ. United to the glorious heaven to which your journey is destined, even now, to participate as joint heirs, heirs, participants, heirs of the grace of life. Now, that may not make some of you happy because I took away your, oh, Imitation of Christ, Thomas Akempis. I'm ashamed at how many Protestants read that stuff. 
You can't model the life of Christ in the sense that you are going to be a copy of him. It's impossible for you to do that. But for you to participate in union with him, for you to be joined to his life with all of your imperfections and yet united to him mystically, spiritually and wonderfully. Now, there is a sojourn. There is a pilgrimage that in spite of your imperfections will take you to glory. And when you read that word imitator, translate it participator, and you have left the elementary teachings behind and you've begun to chew on the solid food of the word of God. And if your preacher says to you, uh, well, I want you to be an imitator of Abraham this week, and that's the reason we're going to have a sermon on Abraham today. You can all be imitators of Abraham. How about being imitators of David? Oh, you want to be imitators of David? Murderers and adulterers? Huh? Is that what you want to imitate? Well, of course, that's not all there is to the life of David. <clears throat> but you see the pitfall there, I trust. So... Let's not read our kind of copycat 20th century exemplarism into this word imitate when we see it in Scripture. And let's think of the solid depths, not the milky babe aspect of this word and this idea. Because in the 11th chapter of this epistle, this writer is going to talk to you about what it means to enter into the faith of Abraham. And he's not going to talk to you about copying it, imitating it in the sense of using it as an example. He's going to talk to you about the fact that Abraham believed he had hope in the invisible and he had the substance of that which was eternal. That's what faith is. It's not copycat exemplarism. It's participation in heaven. That's what it is. Well, you'll have to be patient for another year until we get to that in-depth examination of faith in the 11th chapter, Lord willing. But beginning on January 6th in our second semester this year, Professor Sanborn will be leading us in a study of the book of Galatians. And he promises to finish the whole book in that second semester. So you will not be left hanging as I leave you uh, tonight uh, for the Christmas break and uh, uh, Lord willing until next September. However, I do promise you a little surprise bonus at the end of the second semester if you are interested. But we will keep that for a New Year's revelation. Any questions about what we've covered tonight or any questions you may have about anything? We have a few extra minutes tonight if you want to ask anything off the cuff. Uh, you know, if you want to pick my brain or if you just like to get out of here and go home, that's fine. <laughs> Marge. Does that mean that the letter is addressed to 
<laughs> Very good thinking, and of course, that supports uh, your or- argument that it may be a Jewish audience. Uh, <clears throat> the fact that they did not need to be instructed leans that direction, but I think it is a Jewish-Gentile audience, not a Jewish-Jewish audience. If that makes sense. It's a diaspora Jewish community. That is, they are spread abroad. They're in a Gentile arena. But they are of Jewish background? They are, they are potentially of Jewish background, yes. Another question I had was, is this idea of interpreting or seeing this, the Hebrews um, story, It is my idea. It is my idea. But it is an idea that I had over 40 years ago when I preached through the epistle. I first began to look at the epistle this way, and as I've come back uh, to re-examine the epistle and to do even deeper study of it uh, since last spring and preparing for this, I am increasingly persuaded that this is the answer. There is one scholarly article which tends to agree with me on the wilderness paradigm for this section in verses 4 to 6 of chapter 6. David? Well, I was not present when you were going over uh, chapter 4. Is, is it your position that only Joshua and Caleb and Moses were regenerate out of that whole Exodus generation. I'm thinking of Aaron. Yes, I, I think possibly Aaron and Miriam may also be included in that. But beyond that, I don't see any basis in the text for judging otherwise. When he bars them from 20 years of age and up, that is a serious judgment upon that whole generation of that age, with the exceptions of the people that you've listed. Frank, you look like you have something on your mind back there. Spit it out, man. You got too much on your mind. Correct. They had an evil heart of unbelief. He, he specifies that characterization of them in that third chapter. <clears throat> so they had um, they've been enlightened with God's uh, provision. They tasted. Um, they shared the Spirit was among them. Um, they had the Word. Um, and then you said if, if they fell away again or something. No, I don't want the if in that. No, they they fell away. They showed their evil heart of unbelief by falling away from even the external manifestations that they enjoyed. Right. 
rejecting them. So we're talking about people that um, today that do that same thing. Yes. Even if they, they there's no, if they do that, there's no uh, repentance. There's no. It's impossible to renew them again. Okay. Apostasy is a very serious error. It's a very serious step. Which means that we examine our faith. We examine Christ. It's not me trying to measure my faith. It's my faith measured by its focus on Christ. Christ is the answer here. Even as God was the answer in the wilderness. See, people were not focused on God. They were focused only on getting away, getting their bellies filled, not being under slavery. God had to be their delight, as Christ must be your delight. There's the mark of faith. Do you love Christ above all? Is he the fairest among 10,000? Is he the light of your heart? Is your faith focused upon him? No unregenerate person can say that right. or will say that. Go ahead. But that's it. That's correct. So anybody that does do this didn't love God. David? Um, I have a question more of a broad spectrum or panorama. If this generation refused to learn the Lord's way, that's what they refused instruction. That's what Hebrews 4 tells us. Um, That disobedience, I want to compare or ask you, compared that to the rewardless believer in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. They, the rewardless believer at the judgment seat of Christ has extensively been disobedient. But they're believers. Um, so um, how, how much can a believer spiral down into disobedience and you can say well that person had come to faith in Christ they forfeited their rewards by their disobedience it's going to be burned up it's a judgment seat compared to the amount of disobedience this generation had under the interpretation that they weren't believers at all. And spiral down all the way to adultery and murder, and yet repent. The generation that died in the wilderness never repented. They died with an evil heart of unbelief. The person that may not have the greatest reward at the second coming of Christ still has Christ himself. His reward is Christ alone. That is sufficient. Anything else is, shall we say, icing on the cake. But it's because that person, out of his sorrow and out of his brokenness and out of his genuine love for Christ, is holding on to that supreme reward. He's not holding on to his evil heart of unbelief. Anything else? Merry Christmas and Happy New Year!